The Global Pathways podcast with Ray Offenheiser is produced by the Pulte Institute for Global Development, an integral part of the Keough School of Global Affairs at the University of Notre Dame. The Pulte Institute works to address global poverty and inequality through policy, practice, and partnership, and is a catalyst for centers and faculty at Notre Dame to develop interdisciplinary research programs that address today's most pressing global development challenges. Learn more at pulte.nd.edu. Hello, and welcome to the Global Pathways podcast. I'm Ray Offenheiser, and today we're going to talk about revisioning global corporate culture in the 21st century world. I'm joined today by an old friend, Judy Samuelson, who's the vice president, founder, and executive director of the Business and Society Program at the Aspen Institute. Judy, welcome, and a big thanks for making time. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. I always look forward to our get-togethers on these subjects, and just a little bit of background in the interest of full disclosure. Judy and I have known each other for 30 years, 10 of which we actually overlapped as colleagues at the Ford Foundation. And after leading pioneering work on impact investing with Ford for over a decade, Judy became possessed with a few simple questions. Why doesn't anyone at the Ford Foundation talk about business? (laughs) Something we both became very interested in. And maybe secondly, is it possible to enlist business as a partner or collaborator in our work? Those questions led her to found the Business and Society Program at the Aspen Institute over 20 years ago. So, Judy, it's great to be able to pick up on a conversation you and I have been having over the last two decades, and I'm delighted to pick it up in the context of the release of your new book, The Six Rules of Business, as maybe the focus of the conversation. So let me begin by saying congratulations on the book. So far for me, it's, it's been a great read. So, Judy, I know this is the culmination of a lot of thinking and writing you've been doing over the past two decades on these subjects, and you've managed to take, frankly, a lot of complexity and content that's often deliberately presented in a rather opaque way and make it readily accessible to the general reader about complex issues in in the business sector and and what makes businesses go and what makes them perhaps less sort of socially friendly than perhaps that we'd like them to be. But overall, I think it's a great job, job well done. So let me begin by just saying, well, as one of those activists that you politely describe in your book, pushing for change from the outside, I think this book will serve as a useful departure point for a dialogue between visionary corporate leaders and those in the broad stakeholder and activist community pushing for change. I actually think it's a helpful contribution. So there's a lot to talk about. And so let's just jump into the conversation with kind of a, an easy question for you. And why don't we begin just uh, with you telling us a bit about your work at Aspen, how you began that journey, and and what inspired you to write the new rules for corporate behavior, just to kind of give our listeners a flavor for your trajectory and motivation for publishing this book. Sure, thanks. And again, thanks so much, Ray. It's really fun to talk to you about this because I know how deeply you've gone into these questions from your own organizations that you've been a part of, and you've informed my work as well. So it's really terrific to have this conversation with you in particular. It was at the Ford Foundation that I started thinking about this, as you just referenced, and it was because we had these corporate titans, you know, on the board of trustees, and you remember well, you know, Hank Shack from Cummins Engine, and Bob Haas from Levi Strauss, and David Kearns from Xerox, and they were the ones that started saying, why don't we ever talk about business? You know, business was kind of an alien at the Ford Foundation. You know, it thought about civil society. It didn't think business was a part of that. And if anything was a problem, not part of anything that they cared about or better to stay as far away as possible. So I think we've come a long way. I think foundations are still struggling with this question of how do corporations fit into their work. 
But ultimately, I came to believe that we had to engage with business. And for the last 25 years, I've been basically pursuing the questions about what will need to be true to get the best possible out of business. I think at, at the time that I left the Ford Foundation, I was particularly keen to talk about business education, and maybe we'll discuss that a little bit today. Now, the Business and Society program at Aspen is really about aligning business with the long-term health of society. So it's about business decision-making, the kind of underbelly of what really drives business behavior. And that's partly why I wrote this book. So maybe just to get us oriented toward the core argument, maybe it would be useful if you just sketch out for us the basic proposition and maybe outline for us the six rules. You've simplified a lot of complexity to six rules. And maybe just to give everybody the framework, let's talk about what those rules are and and what's the core proposition. The premise behind the book is that we really need business at the table if we're going to solve our most complex problems. Whatever it is that keeps you awake at night, whether it's climate change or or inequality or lack of economic opportunity or the current national conversation in the U.S. around racism, it's hard to imagine really making real headway without business kind of swimming in the same direction. And business is certainly not the only important player. This is also about a complex dance between business and government and civil society. But business is still operating under a serious trust deficit, too, when 50% of our young people identify as socialists. We know that the kind of view of business is probably pretty tarnished in this country. And so I think the work ahead is really about matching operations with intentions. There's been a lot of noise about business stepping in and saying, we're rethinking the purpose of the corporation, but there's a lot of blind spots. And what I really try to do in this book is to speak to the kind of underlying the design of business, if you will. Business isn't bad or good. It's not moral or immoral. There are consequences of business decisions that certainly, or there's decisions that we might consider immoral. But business itself is just a container for getting things done. You know, it's just the organization of social energy and you know, doing things that you require more capital or agency than you have in your own family or individually. You have to create structures for people to work together. And that's all a corporation is. And so at its best, we're able to really tap its extraordinary talent and resources and complex engagement and put it to good ends. And so I just, I'll briefly mention the six things that I think are kind of shaping that question today. One is clearly that the real value of business today is not something that's easy to put on the balance sheet. It's made up of intangibles. It's something like 80, 85% of business value is things like trust, like employee loyalty, customer loyalty, reputation, the license to operate, all of these things, access to natural resources, these things that are very hard to measure. They certainly are not discussed or measured in finance classrooms. And yet they are the underpinning of, in many respects, what have become the most important pursuits of the executive. And business serves many purposes. That's the second thing. You know, purpose is not the Milton Friedman-esque purpose of the corporation is to enhance shareholder value, full stop. But it serves many purposes. The law is not a constraint. Business executives have the freedom to design the company for a specific purpose and to articulate what that is. But purpose, as we also know, you and I know, is also revealed 
by the decisions that the business makes, the messes it gets into sometimes, think Boeing, Volkswagen, you know, Wells Fargo, some bad moments in business history just in the last decade. But it's also revealed by companies like Southwest that have had employees at the center of the enterprise from the founding. So there are many examples of businesses that are worth emulating. And it's important to step back and kind of take in the sweep of that. You know, the third piece is that, and this is a domain that you know extremely well, corporate responsibility is not defined by the business. It's defined today way outside the gate. And behind almost every movement, there's a, an NGO like Oxfam that you ran that has articulated a clear target and has developed a campaign to figure out how to harness a brand and elevate behavior to better ends. And there are many NGOs, you know, environmental organizations, labor organizations, human rights organizations that have figured out the technique for how to do that and to partner with others and to assure that you can start to connect the biggest brand in the business, which is, by the way, usually not the worst actor. The worst actor is somebody who doesn't have a brand. So it's, but how to use that brand and deploy it to drive change. The fourth piece of this is about employees. The real change there is happening so rapidly, we can barely take it in. That employees are the ones that have become the accountability mechanism for business. It's never been really investors, although we talk about socially inclined investors, and there are some, and there are plenty of them. But investors come in lots of shapes and sizes, and consumers, consumers rebound to price and convenience. It's employees, on the other hand, employees are actually very fully aligned with the corporation itself. It kind of wants the same things. It wants the business to do really well, but it also, employees have this remarkable ability to think both about the risks and the opportunities and to bring the outside in. So today, they're really the bridge builders between the corporation and some of these remarkably complex questions around climate and, and human welfare. We could talk a lot more about that, but think Google Walkout and think of the action of Amazon employees today and unions being formed and companies stepping out of money and politics. This is because of employee activism. Finally, one that's kind of counterintuitive, but capital is not a scarce resource anymore. You know, we have all this noise in the stock market and we spend all of this time talking about stock values. You know, it hasn't been for a while. Tech companies are capital light. They don't really depend on that much capital. They sometimes go public just in name only, just to provide an exit for their early investors. They don't access the public markets again. Their stock is being publicly traded, but you know it's not of the day when General Motors was at the top of the stock tables and was you know raising considerable amount of capital for a deeply capital-intensive industry. And so the question is, what is more important? And that's really about the culture of the enterprise. So culture today trumps capital, and that is unleashing lots of new ways of thinking about innovation and driving change. And then the piece that we're seeing play out in real time today is when you're facing existential risks, it's about co-creation, not about collaboration. We're seeing a remarkable moment in this right now because of COVID, where you've seen a rapid development of multiple vaccines that are coming online at virtually the same time. 
that story when it's fully told. When we see the movie version of this and look back on it, I think we'll see how much collaboration took place between drug companies that were cracking this virus together to figure it out. That in fact, we're collaborating with the public sector, of course, as we know they were. But also right now are helping each other with distribution and with filling vials and doing those things as they try to help get these vaccines out working as quickly as possible. So that is a remarkable, there's a lot of co-creation that happens in the sustainability space that happens, is, will be happening, is happening, is starting to happen around climate change. And I think we could talk about other examples in the more human domain as well. So those are kind of the six rules, you know, the value of intangibles, the pretty obvious change in how we're discussing the purpose of the corporation, but something that's always been true, that corporations serve many purposes, importance of where the, the rules are being set are not in control of the company. They're being set by forces and NGOs and others that are way outside the gate. You know, the importance of employees, the importance of culture, and this opportunity to really embrace better ways of working together. Well, that's a great summary, Judy. And so let's let move ahead quickly and into the text itself. And right off the bat, you make a strong case that there's already a lot of change underway. And so there's good reasons to be optimistic. So the the tone of the book is setting out some goalposts, but also challenging the industry to sort of meet those challenges, but also giving a sense that there's a lot happening already and it's happening at a, at a rapid pace. I wonder if you could just maybe share a couple of stories where, you know, you have come to believe in the change you see around you through some of these case examples. You know, I tend to think of them in kind of categories. I mean, we're seeing tremendous change driven by the climate crisis. 2020 started off with Microsoft making a profound commitment to carbon capture, to opening up their IP, to massive investment. And we've seen other companies, I mean, very recently, Citibank just announced a $220 billion investment fund committed to carbon technologies. So that ends up being examples of individual companies, this whole net zero campaign where companies are stepping up, Larry Fink writing about this in his annual letter to the businesses that are invested in by BlackRock, which is basically every public company out there. So you're seeing kind of individual companies step up and articulate it, but you're also seeing new coalitions and creation that's happening also at the level of trade associations and the like. It's also happening in the kind of conversation about livable wage. You know, I just referenced Amazon employees and think back about Google employees and walk out and the fact that it was just a month or so ago that 220 Google employees announced that they had been working for a year on developing a union at Google. That's coming from an employee initiative, but it's going right at some questions where we're really starting to see some pretty amazing shifts in attitude. You know, Walmart stepping up on you know, on a federal minimum wage or on their own wages. Again, there are many examples of companies that have been at these questions for a long period of time and have always been above the bar on this, but it's a remarkable moment. The same is true for racial equity. There are many companies that have made pretty remarkable, again, commitments both to greater investment, but also to scrubbing their own protocols and processes from recruitment to advancement and opportunity within. So I think we're seeing a lot of interesting examples of company agency in this moment. So one interesting question I pose for you, and this comes a little bit to picking up on your climate question, is that I was at the Paris climate talks 
And there were industry leaders there who were from some of the kind of companies you would, I think, be very much spotlighting. But you had the sense that they were kind of first movers. And there were also, but that government in some sense, and even the negotiators were the laggards, that the some of the private sector may be ahead of the, of the public sector on this. And by being behind the private sector, government is allowing space for laggards. In, in fact, in inhibiting sort of the movement, particularly on climate in this particular case, but it may, you might be able to say that about other sectors for change as well, unionization and so on and so forth. What's your sense of what government is doing or not doing on these issues to actually promote positive change? And does it have a role? Yeah, government, of course, government has a role. You know, the best thing we can do, frankly, is hope that business really does defund politics. That confounds everything. Sometimes I feel like we don't, we're not in the United States being well served by a system where we can barely ascertain what the real public opinion is because there's so much money sloshing around that is, in fact, rebounds to the status quo or holds us back in myriad different ways. But, you know, government's always, of course, you have to raise the bar, but I think there's a lot of interesting work. One of the pieces that I, I love is an article that actually came out of a dialogue that we ran in the Asp at the Aspen Institute many years ago, but the article was written ultimately by Roger Martin, who was then moving to Rotman to become the dean of the business school at the University of Toronto. And he wrote an article called The Virtue Matrix, and it was published in Harvard Business Review, and was basically about the natural process by which a company, either because it's potentially been targeted or because it has some reason to raise the bar, it is willing to take that risk to be the first one to step out. And then if it does it well, and if that company has chosen well how it goes about it, it will in essence raise the bar behind us and other companies will step into the fray. So nobody's looking to raise their own costs and get ahead of the curve. That's why you hope that government will be keeping the bar at a level that keeps companies moving in the right direction. And that's certainly what we need with a federal minimum wage at this point. But I think you do get examples of companies that are moving ahead of what government is able to do at any point in time. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the interesting cases on the climate issue was Swiss Re making, indicating some years ago at the Clinton Global Initiative that it was now going to require that there be some assessment of climate as a risk. And then that gets passed down through all the supply chain for insurance providers yeah, that further down. The insurance is a good example of where government holds us back because insurance is actually regulated at the state level. And what are the politicians regulating it for? They're not regulating it in order to get carbon priced appropriately. They're regulating to keep insurance rates as low as possible for their voters. Ah. So you have these situations where the system itself is kind of defeating itself because the regulatory authority is actually pushing back against insurance the insurance industry that is saying, we don't want to insure homes that are being built in high fire risk parts of Northern California. Why should we have to do that? And the, the politicians basically look at it, you know, well, that's not going to get me very far. So you get this kind of conflict. So I think insurance is a particularly complicated domain in which to have this conversation. There are probably other examples as well. Yeah. Well, one of the first movers that was of interest to me was Paul Pullman at Unilever. And he sort of got way out in front early on in terms of some of the things they were trying to do in terms of, you know, looking at poverty within their supply chains and 
thinking about, you know, could he activate the supply chain to bring in products from small producers in Africa and so forth? And he, I think he basically was very dismissive of quarterly reporting and so forth. But it seemed like he, as a first mover, he was also taking hits from his CEO colleagues who were finding some of this behavior a little bit problematic for them. And so, and they didn't, weren't ready to quite jump on the train. How do you assess, you know, the role that Pullman played in terms of showing what could be done and enabling well, others to do it? I think he showed amazing leadership. And he, of course, became the darling of the kind of CSR sustainability community because of his willingness to step out and to build the kind of sustainable living plan that became the hallmark of, of Unilever's, that we are going to really embrace the brands and assume that we have to get ahead of the curve and that the consumers essentially will follow us. And I think they proved that point to a great enough degree that when there was pressure on Pullman to break up the company, you know, but it was it was the big Brazilian private equity owner that wanted to take it private or kind of essentially move on the company. You know, the shareholders resisted. They stuck with the company. They drunk the water, if that's the right way to say it. But yeah, the very first day on the job, he said, we're not providing quarterly earnings guidance anymore. Well, we'll report earnings. We have to report the earnings, but we're not going to guide the market. We're not going to pay that much attention to the noise, the up and down noise of the stock price. We can't engage in long-term change and really drive sustainability if we're constantly bannering about you know, the stock price. Yeah, that's great. Well, I want to shift for a moment. I think you have this nice way of, sort of talking about these issues in the book, which you talk about old stories and new stories. And the new stories are stories like we're just talking about, people moving in the direction of some of these six rules. But let's go back for a moment and, and ask ourselves where we are and what are some of the other issues that maybe we need to wrestle with. And let's start with one old story which and work our way to the new ones. And you, you mentioned at some point Milton Friedman, only briefly, albeit at the beginning of your book, but his shadow, I think it's fair to say, looms large over corporate America. And there's that famous article in the New York Times some years ago, the social responsibility of business is to increase its profits. And Friedman has become perhaps the old story as we live it today, or at least the granddaddy of the old story. Maybe you could sketch out his legacy, because I think to some degree, your six rules are kind of undoing a lot of his legacy. And and we've been living with greed is good, and philanthropy has a limited role for companies, and your job is to deliver to shareholders and little else. But there's a whole other neoliberal economic model that's kind of been erected around all of that that everybody's operating within. I I wonder how you sort of see all of that Friedman legacy. Well, it's clearly a legacy. You know, it was 50 years ago in September that he published that article in in the New York Times Magazine. And so there was a lot of conversation about it again this fall. I think the piece of the legacy is that it was one thing that he put this idea out there. It was reinforced because, in fact, this was happening at a time the business was not performing very well. There was a lot of global competition. There was, was viewed as business had become kind of fat and lazy and stock price wasn't performing the way people wanted it to perform. And they felt that there, we needed something to shake things up. So what Friedman essentially did is put a single objective function out there manage to the stock price and everything else will follow in suit. It, of course, unleashed, you know, what has been basically a 50-year conversation between scholars who would follow the economist and the, those who would follow that basic belief and those who have railed against it for years. And that would include many, many ethics professors and the like. 
But what really reinforced Friedman was what happened next, which was within 10 years, scholars at Harvard Business School and elsewhere had embraced the idea that we need to reinforce Friedman by assuring that we pay executives accordingly. And that what they were concerned is, is what scholars call agency theory, and which is basically a, a complicated way to essentially say, we wanna make sure that you're working for the shareholder. And even though the shareholders technically don't own the company, they own shares of stock with limited rights, but it was reinforced by Mike Jensen, who was a professor at Harvard Business School and others that basically figured out the technology of how do you then pay executives in stock. And that practice is still done. You know, that's still the stock price is allowed a signal in most CEO pay packages. So that has unleashed a lot of work on our behalf and others to try to kind of rethink what are we paying executives to do? We really think the purpose of the corporation is many different purposes or can be serving a public purpose. How do you assure that the pay is not working in opposition to that intention? But I think it's maybe fair to say that it took us a step further toward a radical view. Once embraced by the political parties, it became a way of justifying radical deregulation, austerity economics, the largely sort of Washington consensus that's guided a lot of the international development thinking over the last number of years. And so in some ways, we got to a point where both parties were in some sense subscribed to the same kind of economic model, which today actually they're having to kind of back off in some ways. In other words, the discussion about unionization or you know minimum wage is in some sense saying, or even a $1.9 billion stimulus is sort of saying, there is a role for government. We don't shrink government and turn everything over to the market because the market is not neither immoral or amoral, but you might say it's morally neutral. And maybe the role of the state is to bring in some sort of normative content to the marketplace. It hasn't been working, right? I mean, we've seen for the first time historically, there's no relationship anymore between employees and their productivity and their wages and too much of the, what do they call it, gain sharing is going to the shareholders. So we can't live with this much longer. You know, it destabilizes the whole system. Got a sign in my wall up here that says, I cannot have a successful business in a failed society. And we're seeing those stresses playing out in communities. We're seeing the tensions that are playing out. They've been heightened by COVID. You know, we're seeing it in real time. Yeah, I mean, I think there's one statistic you provide in your book where you're talking about one particular company, I think, where 90% of value creation is going to shareholders and what little is left. No, that's the, all companies. That's the general average of all companies. That's the general average of all companies. It's over 90% of profits for public companies are sent to the shareholders in the form of dividends or share buybacks that are often designed just to engineer the stock price. Right, right. High. To the extent that companies borrow in order to buy back their stock. If you bring borrowings into it as well, it's like 130% of profits are returned to shareholders. So this is totally out of whack. You know, there was a day in which share buybacks, which essentially share buybacks is just the company taking stock back in, retrenching and reducing the amount of stock that's freely trading, which means then that the value is distributed among fewer stockholders and the stock price pops up. It makes a lot of sense if the CEO is being paid in stock, that's an attractive thing to do. But so this whole idea of shareholder value is so embedded. So how how do we shake loose from this? I mean, what's some of the things we're talking about 
you know, engagement of unions at Google, is that going to change that 90% in the case of Google such that, you know, they're going to be some value sharing with employees or are there other companies where that's going to happen? Walmart, it's now announced at least it's going to meet the minimum wage rather than basically having staff tapping federal money, federal funds to get food stamps to, and, and other sort of, you know, government benefits to actually live a decent life. How do we shake loose from the shareholder value premise? Well, you know, you chip away at it. And that's what we've been doing. That's why we're seeing such a foment about it today. I mean, that's why the Business Roundtable and this long-term campaign by us and others to deal with both the theoretical, you know, the question of disrupting that narrative, calling people on their belief that the law requires you to put the shareholders first. That's the book that Lynn Stout, who I dedicate this book to, that was the book that she wrote, The Shareholder Value Myth. Her book lays out very clearly what the law actually says. The work of Lynn Payne at Harvard Business School and Joe Bauer, who wrote this remarkable article called The Error at the Heart of Corporate Leadership. It's a brilliantly written article that really tells the tale of how this actually works, the kind of underbelly of the system, and it's worth reading, and I'd recommend it to your listeners today. So you, you know, you chip away at the theory, but you also chip away at the practice. And the thing about the shareholder value, it's a very powerful idea because it's so simplistic. You know, it's a single objective function. It's easy to teach in finance classrooms. So it's theory meets practice, and we can have kind of tie it up with a neat ribbon and believe that we're doing the right thing by adhering to this rule. And of course, it's more complicated than that. Successful companies have never managed to one objective. They can't. Think about the companies that you have worked with over the years, Ray. I mean, they have some of them have hundreds of thousands of employees stretched all the way across the planet, operating in dozens of different countries around the globe. Currencies, they can't even begin to forecast how much money they're making on a quarterly basis. The idea that they can actually get that down to a penny a share and just figure out how to manage that, it's a ludicrous idea. You have to be, you know how important their license to operate is if you work in global markets. You know what's required for a mining company that is essentially stuck in place. They can't pick up and move to another country and reestablish their operations if they don't respect the rule of law and human rights and the environmental protections. This has not been a pretty story. It's evolved over time, but because of the work of you and many others, we've started to open up these questions in new ways. And so I think it's in motion. I'm not going to say that the problem is fixed. You know better than that, and so do I. But I believe it's we have shaken the foundations of something that was we were kind of enthralled to. And I believe we're having a fresh conversation today. Great. So there are some other areas, too, I think, where companies are also, I think you could say, maximizing profits to the benefit of shareholders, that externalizing costs oftentimes is kind of part of this a business strategy, causing uh, taxpayers to pay for pollution, damage, pursuing regulatory advantage, engaging in tax evasion or avoidance minimizing transparency. These are actions that in many cases aren't actually illegal. They do benefit the company, but you know, could they be considered immoral by some standards or how do they figure into this sort of change agenda? You know, I call them blind spots. I may be being too charitable. Um, <laughs> I think I would say you're being too charitable. <laughs> okay, well, I'll, I call them blind spots because I need to be able to work with the business community. So, And they are blind spots. You and I both 
worked in philanthropy for a, a good stretch. And honestly, if I could get rid of corporate philanthropy, I would. Because I think what it would do is it would expose, rather than using corporate philanthropy as a shield that kind of mixes messages, we would retreat back to saying, what is this company actually doing here? You know, Indra Nui of Pepsi used to say, it's about how we make our money, not how we give it away. And that's it. It's the business model. What is it designed to do? And what are the real impacts of business decision-making? And we have many domains in which we've laid out lofty intentions about the purpose of the corporation, but peel things back, you know, tax avoidance, we're still running tax as if it's a profit center. You know, what is a fair tax? We went through a process of changing the corporate tax under the Trump administration and bringing it down from 36%, which is a little high by my measure, 24% was getting closer to something that seems like corporations could agree that that would be a reasonable tax to pay. And yet they're still in the thrall of, it's almost like we've set it up that the least possible tax is the only answer. And that is, it is immoral. I would call that clearly immoral. It's a different conversation in Europe that is in the United States, and maybe that'll start to change here as well. Money and politics, I already mentioned. You're saying this, but what do your lobbyists actually do? People are talking about the importance of employees and worker well-being. Well, why are we contracting out work? You know, what are our intentions when we contract out work? That is a huge contributor to poverty in the United States, is taking people off of the payroll, separating them from benefits and from a job security that employment represents, and the shot at moving up the ladder. That is a part of the system that has enabled, you know, generations of immigrants to be able to do better than their parents did. And that is not the case today. And so in all of these domains, and I'd add CEO pay, and there are probably others that I missed, these are what I call their blind spots, and we need to make sure we hold business to account on these things that are kind of the underbelly of how business actually performs. And it is those decisions that I think we can determine if they're moral or immoral. So, Judy, my title for your next book is Blind Spots, the six, okay. six major blind spots. This <laughs> <So. laughs> is blind spots. Okay. Let's turn to the news story for a moment. You've been talking a little bit about drivers of change, and some of them are I think it's fair to say some of them are external and sort of the kind of advocacy that companies experience, but some of them are internal as well, the way their employees are behaving or risks to supply chains. But what are some of the core ingredients you're seeing in companies that are moving most swiftly toward this new mindset? What's the, maybe the, the magic sauce that sort of is beginning to kind of congeal in, in some of these companies that are making a difference and on the move, if I can put it that way? Well, I think we should start with companies that have always been like this. I think I spoke about Costco or mentioned Costco earlier. I mean, that's a company that from its beginning, you know, paid a decent wage. From its beginning said, how hard is this to figure out? You know, if we treat our employees well, you know, we're going to get better customer service. If we have better customer service, the customers are going to be more inclined to return to the store. That is not a difficult concept. And yet we know there are many retailers in this moment that have pulled back from having paid a premium during the earlier months of COVID and then did it for a while, but it pulled back. But Costco didn't pull back. And they announced in their quarterly call that they're going to continue to pay that premium. You know, it hit their stock price for at least a few days, but they're not, that's not what they're listening to. They're listening to, they built a culture that it works for them and they know the ingredients to that are clear to them. The model is very clear. 
and they've stayed with it. And ultimately, the shareholders are well rewarded as well. Southwest would be another one. You know, Herb Keller built a remarkable company. It put the employees at the center. And we all know from the airline business that it's about customer service. That is a principal measure of success. We saw Delta that coming off of bankruptcy and put in a very lucrative profit sharing plan that was applied to every employee equally across the business. You know, if you get a 14%, the 14% doesn't matter if you're the CEO or the frontline worker, you know, everybody gets the same percentage of their pay in that bonus that year. Those are remarkable. That's the glue behind building a positive culture. And I think today, the key question we're trying to figure out is how to make sure we're building companies that work for our employees. And so I think that is an active question. You are seeing some companies in financial services. I mean, I'll mention PayPal. We've done fair amount of work at the Aspen Institute with them. You know, they're one, Salesforce is another one that's taken an internal look, serious look at the internal pay equity. Dan Schulman of PayPal, he's been involved in a program to make sure they understand, do they have employees that are actually not doing well financially? Just because have we not really taken into account what it means to earn XYZ in ABC jurisdiction? So companies are starting to do this. I'm on the the board of a wonderful organization called the Financial Health Network that has an entire program about how to assess the welfare of your own employees as well as the customers in the financial services domain. So I think there is a lot of change there, but I think that's a key driver is this kind of human welfare piece of this puzzle. One of the things that I've been seeing some companies beginning to introduce, and I just, it's hard to kind of determined from looking at the from the outside, whether and to what degree it makes a difference is trying to reimagine the purpose of the company, which I think in the book you speak to. And my sense is that different companies are going about it in different ways. I've seen one example where it started as a conversation about let's come up with a very simple, almost tagline statement of purpose. And then it became sort of a driver for all sorts of change throughout the entire company at all levels and kind of driving a very significant amount of cultural change. And another version of that, and I don't know whether these two things are linked, is you know the Michael Porter, Mark Kramer social value proposition and whether that becomes sort of, in some ways, a driver of this repurposing kind of exercise. And how do you see this issue of purpose and how do you see the whether social value proposition actually is kind of at the heart of why people are doing this and where they hope to end up? You know, purpose is instrumental. You know, if you study systems change, and that is something we study and that we worked in, at the Aspen Institute, you know, it starts with the mindset, the highest leverage point in really changing a system is starting with what is actually believed to be true. What's kind of the top of the pyramid in all of the effects that may cascade down start with, and in this case, if we're talking about business, it starts with what the executive believes and what the board is aligned around. And so that in corporations, we call that their purpose. Can it be abused? Sure, but we ferret those things out. If the purpose is not speaking to the real business model, we're missing the connection of what's really going to drive the change. So I think that's it. It's about setting intentions. The work ahead is about aligning then with those intentions. You know, Mark Moody Stewart, who is a, you probably know Mark, he was a CEO of Shell, and he came to an Aspen dialogue that we ran years back. 
this was, I'm trying to remember what it would have been, I guess in the early 2000s, so around 2000, 2001 maybe. And he was staying at the Aspen Meadows, which is the Aspen campus in Aspen, Colorado. He came in and he's into the conference room for our meeting one day. And he says, you know, every day I pick up my towel and hang it up on the towel bar and follow the instructions that are on the little card that says, if you hang up your towel again, we know we don't need to wash it. And that's going to save, you know, a gazillion gallons of water across the hotel, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Mark was a very funny guy. And he goes, and every night when I go back to my hotel room, they've replaced the towel anyway. (laughs) There it is, right? Intentions, operations. (laughs) If we're really keen, it's like the old quality, TQM, you know, the old quality movement, or today what might be called lean manufacturing. It's about continuous improvement. There's no end state here. You don't get to the point where you have a, a company that is somehow a perfect entity any more than any of us are perfect there's all of these blind spots there are all of these complexities there's all of these things to balance but companies know how to do this that's what they know how to do well and so when you're really driving change for example through a supply chain it's not that we don't know how to do it it's about intentions and then really putting kind of our operating wheel to play in a word, though, what about the Porter Kramer sort of role and kind of some of this? Is that peripheral or is it as their the various articles they've they've written and all the those various sort of seminars they've given? How, how central are they to this trans- transition? I think, it, you know, we've had a lot of people who use it as their framework, but there are a lot of different frameworks. It's certainly not the only one. That's one contribution. You know, there are members of a just was on a phone call with a woman who can't say enough about the Conscious Capitalism Network. You know, these are all mixes of frameworks and ideas and then building peer groups to help people stay at work that's really hard to do. That's kind of what we do at the Aspen Institute. You know, you find the people that are leaning into it. You help them kind of get on the train and then stay on the train by helping insulate them from some of the pressures to jump back off again. So one of the things that your vision, I think, presumes is that Companies, I think you used the term earlier, look beyond the gate. And so in some ways, we're trading shareholders for stakeholders in some ways. And we're asking companies to think more broadly about who their stakeholders are. How far should companies go in terms of how they think about that? In other words, if you're a mining company and you're in a particular region, how far away from your mine do you imagine a stakeholders should be that you have some responsibility for? How do you think about responsibility if you embrace that stakeholder concept. What's changed is that you're not the one who's going to define that. That's going to be defined by somebody else who figures out how to define it for you if you're not clever enough to stay ahead of the game. So it's not always within the company's control to decide how far out the gate they need to be concerned. But, you know, I don't really like the term stakeholders. I find it doesn't say anything in particular. I think every company is different. I think every industry is different. And dependent on what a company is aiming at, what it's really intending to accomplish, what gets revealed to that company is which of these inputs are most critical to their long-term success. I think employees are always important, but to what degree is this community important or you know, where in the supply chain do we need to be most effective at weeding out things that we need to be responsible for in order to have continuous supply and a healthy operation to the end of the supply chain. These are decisions that will depend on what business you're in. If you're Pepsi and you own Lay's, you know, you have to worry about potato farmers. 
and you're probably the biggest potato farmer in the planet. So you both have real agency on that issue. You can really have a huge impact on whether or not on the use of water and on the use and the health of soil, because you have such tremendous depth and breadth. Is that more important than plastics in the, you know, the ocean? You have to do both well, but you're listening constantly for what are the issues that are rebounding and it'll, that will disrupt our business operation if we don't manage them well. So I think it comes back to who are you, what are we trying to accomplish, and what will need to be true in order to operate your company with the kinds of trust and reputation that is critical if you have a brand. I mean, in some sense, you're getting at the point you made earlier about systemic risk and thinking about systemic risk. So let's say you're a, you know, a chocolate producer and you're realizing that climate change is affecting cacao production in West Africa and there aren't many other places where you can get your chocolate. You then have to kind of really be thinking about what are you doing in that region, both for agriculture and maybe for the workers in that region and thinking a little bit more in profound ways about can you even continue to be a chocolate producer in, in 20 years out or the way that coffee rust is devastating Central America at the present time? Is that something we're going to see in other parts of the world that will make Starbucks a company that's going to have a hard time getting coffee? But this whole issue of systemic risk, I mean, do you think that's something that companies now are realizing in the face of climate change and inequality and a pandemic that is much more alive for them than it has been before and is going to maybe even change operations and scope of the way these, particularly the global businesses operate? Absolutely. I mean, you know, you can see it up close and personal in the work that you've done. I mean, I think that, you know, there is these existential risks. I mean, climate is one of them, and it's probably the biggest. But water, mass migrations, all of these things are, to just kind of use an instrumental lens for a second, you know, they're business disruptors. And so they have to be thinking about the interplay of the entire ecosystem that they both influence and are influenced by. I don't think any of this is easy, but the technology for doing it requires business to be thinking about who they need to work with within their own industry, as well as governments and their authority to drive change. And it gets to be a stew of players that who do we really need at the table in order to attempt to repair a system that may be at risk. You know, I use the example in the book about fisheries. I mean, that's a very complex domain because, you know, fish don't stay put, you know, they kind of move around and you have a lot of rogue operators that can fish wherever they want to fish. And so there are clear protocols that NGOs have developed to help try to assure that they bring to the table the biggest producer and the biggest B2C company that have the most influence and by bringing them to the table and getting them to agree to a set of protocols, they've really literally turned around fisheries that were at risk. So that is, you know, McDonald's working on sustainable beef is another example. Who has more at risk if they don't figure this out? No one. And then, of course, behind that is a remarkably complex supply chain, one that I don't begin to understand with no brand operators. I mean, it's a complex system, but they have to be able to understand that system in order to avoid the kinds of business disruptions that they would otherwise face. So many examples of this complex terrain, but one that is is very dynamic and where private initiative has become a key to unlocking deep change. Maybe shifting the the agenda a little bit. Another one, which is, I think, really hard to imagine how private industry itself 
imagines addressing this issue, but inequality here in the United States now, you know, we have extraordinary concentration of wealth. And during the COVID experience, actually, billionaires have actually, in many cases, increased their wealth of their estates by some 20% or more in some cases. And yet we have sort of a tax system that in some sense rewards, if not accelerates that process. Yet if you go back to the 1950s and what some people call the golden age of capitalism, we had high tax rates on companies. Businesses were doing quite well. We had high employment. We had high unionization. And somehow we did quite well. And some would yearn for that era again. I don't know whether it could be reproduced, but it would require sort of really radical transformation and radical rethinking of capitalism. And along the lines of maybe what some of these people that are thinking about conscious capitalism might be thinking about. How do we tackle that one? I mean, where you have Angus Deaton writing about suicides across America today and resulting from loss of jobs or undermining the, the welfare of small farm families across the hinterland of the country. But here we have global corporations who don't, in some sense, even think of themselves as national entities anymore with right. national loyalties. And so to what degree does a company assume it has any loyalty to a national population? And in some sense, does it even think that political stability is actually an asset and that a sort of a stable political entity with a sort of a well-nourished, with a high level of welfare is actually a good thing for the business, as a, even if it's a global entity? I get the sense that sometimes, you know, Walmart's reason for running toward a you know, minimum wage is they see that kind of disruption in rural areas of the United States. They see the diminished quality of life and they, re- they can sense the sense of despair. And how do companies even imagine that as a potential systemic risk, if I can put it that way? You know, well, companies are just made up of people, right? So, I mean, they have a structured corporate form, but this is a question of leadership, I think. And I think leadership in this domain, it's multiple roles that need to be played. None of this, if this was easy, it'd be done by now. It's so obvious it's a problem. I do think given that we have a new administration in Washington that is concerned with inequality, we have a Janet Yellen's number two at Treasury is going to, you know, just testifying and he says he thinks inequality is a huge economic problem. You can't really grow economic opportunity with inequality growing at the pace that it has been. So it calls on business leaders, I think, in several ways. One is about policy. What are the policies that business will lean in on that it has been reluctant or not willing to lean on? If you take an organization like the Business Roundtable, you know, which represents a lot of our largest companies and biggest brands in the United States, it's a Washington-based lobbying organization. And traditionally, the things you could count on them to weigh in on were essentially taxes, as in keep them low, and regulations, can we get rid of them? And, you know, I don't mean to make a total cartoon out of it. It's obviously a little more complex than that, but it's tax and trade. And that's a place where business can agree. So if some industries are living wage, I mean, they're paying way over living wages. Most of technology, they don't tend to have people. Then you get in the underbelly. But yeah, are you using contract workers that are not being paid as fairly as those that are on your payroll? So everybody has a question to ask here, but these questions don't play out the same for every company in every industry. So the job of bringing executives together who do have a voice in this game, that has become the work of these trade associations today because they know they are speaking to the fact 
that in fact, we will not have a healthy economy if we don't bring all of our citizens along for this ride. And so I do think there's a role in policy to define which of these policies are most important and to have business at the table on some of these changes that are critical. Then there's kind of the leadership piece. You know, employees expect their CEOs today to give voice to questions that are of concern to them. And I think we're gonna have more CEOs raising these questions you can't raise it without making sure that you're, cons- you're operating consistently internally. And then that gets in the question of what choices are actually available to the executive? What are the things that you can do without any business change in policy, without any having to step out of your office and you know, make a public noise about it? What can you actually be doing with changes you can make internally that have deep influence on inequality, on economic opportunity, who's at the table and who's not. And that's one of the things we're intently, we call it choice points, and we're intensely interested in identifying what those choices are and trying to give more visibility to companies that do it right. One of the things I think has been interesting to watch over the last two decades, kind of as a subset of the corporate social responsibility domain, is this challenge to companies to be more transparent about revenue flows, about policy, about a whole range of different issues. And even on issues like beneficial ownership, you know, who owns what, where, about taxation and so forth. And to what degree do you think that's been good? And to what degree, you know, how much transparency is realistically possible, given the fact that there are proprietary interests and so forth? How far can companies go in that domain? And particularly for industry leaders who maybe some companies go way out in terms of trying to be totally transparent, but in some sense, the backsliders in some sense can take advantage of that. And so you end up with a problem of the first mover is at a, potentially at a disadvantage, although some companies have decided that's not a problem anyway. So how do you look at this whole transparency question and how do you speak about that and within the context of your rules? Well, I think there are some interesting examples. I mean, one of the ones that I'm familiar with is was Levi Strauss, which is a company that I admire tremendously. They went totally transparent on their sources of supply. And the reason they went totally transparent on source supply is because they know that they're a, a company that lives by high standards and they felt that it was important and it was important for the market and it would be part of that process of allowing the first mover to maybe get some of the benefit. But you know, you traditionally wouldn't release your sources of supply in any, any industry because if that's a scarce resource, you're essentially you know, offering a ticket to your competitor. But there are examples of that. And I think we'll see the same thing happening right now in this moment around vaccines, where they've been trying to work out where the kinks in the supply chain that have slowed down the progress of distribution of vaccines. So do you offer up some, do you do it or you don't do it? I mean, it's almost like a moral choice in in that kind of a moment. So I think there's interesting examples of it. I'd say Transparency is not always helpful. I don't think transparency on CEO pay has been very helpful. I don't think it's made one damn difference about how much we pay executives. And if anything, it's enabled CEOs to know even more about what each other are paid and then to want to make sure that they're making as much (laughs) as the other guy. (laughs) But at the same time, you still think CEO pay is a problem, I would think, right? It's a huge problem. It's a huge problem. It certainly drives inequality, but it's also a problem because of the design of pay and what it's rewarding inside firms. Essentially, it assumes externalizing costs, and that's not a good system. Right. And it also oftentimes rewards failure enormously with golden parachutes for people who've 
you know, made egregious sort of errors and, and have been forced out of companies. So there's almost like you can't lose. It's like a situation for many CEOs. We have a little bit of time left, and maybe I want to touch on a couple of issues. What should we be demanding from Wall Street to get these rules in place? Are there some things that specifically we need to be thinking about in terms of how Wall Street operates? and Or maybe it's more about how people perceive Wall Street and engage Wall Street, as you said earlier, in this world in which capital is abundant and perhaps the stock price is not necessarily at all connected with the real economy, maybe we should diminish the importance of Wall Street in a, at a moment when it's so much of it is automatic trading and computer-generated trades. Yeah, um, I think that's right. I mean, a lot of it is just noise. The stock market is noise. You know, it's not. Companies, they got their money when they took the company public. They're not continuing to benefit from trading. You know, if the stock price goes up, it doesn't change the fortune of the company. It doesn't increase the amount of money that they have in the bank, except when you're paying CEOs in stock. It may make the CEO richer if the stock price goes up. So I think there's parts of the of Wall Street I would rather ignore. Wall Street means a lot of different things. I'm interested in the action, in the behavior of private equity firms, companies that take maybe a public company or another company private, and with the intention of building in greater efficiency, technology, maybe reducing costs, downsizing in order to kind of take the company public again with a higher price. I think that's under the microscope today. We are starting to see private equity firms that understand that if you actually invest in employees, the company's going to outperform. And so they're starting to look at schemes of profit sharing. So when they take the company private, they start actually looking a little bit more longer term about the health of the employee base. This isn't a panacea. We got a lot more that we could talk about in that domain, but I think it depends on what part of the Wall Street we're talking about. Yeah. I want to give you some time to talk a little bit about education because I know you've invested so much energy and time in sort of thinking about business education in the country, in some ways pushing really a, an agenda where you were encouraging or incentivizing deans of business schools to really inject much more of a kind of an ethical perspective into their curricula. And I know you did that for almost two decades and you gave awards to schools that actually were, you felt were performing reasonably well. What you're thinking about business schools today and, and, and MBAs? I mean, I, I have some friends in, the, in business schools in the Boston area and some of them sort of feel like we're almost, maybe we're coming to a moment when the idea of growing more MBA programs is actually gone by and that maybe we need to rethink completely the role they play. Yeah, so, I think there is some need for rethinking. My biggest concern when it comes up, we have worked in business schools for very long, for you know, a couple of decades and seen tremendous change and spent a lot of time with faculty who are creative thinkers in this domain are very committed to training the kinds of managers that you and I would both want to hang out with. So business schools are Massive part of the education system of the United States. 25% of undergrads, 25% of graduate students get their degrees in business. And that vastly undercounts econ majors in liberal arts colleges and small colleges that may not have a business program. So it's a big part of our education, interestingly, of our citizenry, of our citizenry that go on to become take on positions of leadership. So getting it right really matters. And it takes us back to what are they actually, what's the dominant message that's being communicated to students about, about the purpose of the corporation? You know, what are they actually learning? What do schools think they're teaching or what are students actually learning? Because 
what they learn is the impressions that they get through a course of study and how those those things interplay. So I think that is an important question. You know, I think there's also now one around the assumption that it's all about growth. You know, what does growth mean now? We are hitting planetary limits. Can we really continue to be teaching to kind of a presumption that to maximize growth is the part of the economic paradigm. There is a kind of degrowth movement that's taking place in universities. And I'll be interested in seeing to what degree that starts getting picked up in business schools. And then I think there's important questions about the role of the executive and what are the, you know, that I spoke about earlier today about the roles that they have to play and elevating that, you know, what are the questions of leadership and management? What does that really look like today? I think there's a lot, business schools matter a lot. They're interesting places. They're kind of polyglot places. They hire political scientists and anthropologists and economists along with management professors, you know, and the best of them, they really understand the historic nature of this moment and what will need to be true in order to have a better tomorrow. Great. So, Judy, this has been great fun. I see two books in your future, Blind Spots and The Future of Degrowth. Um, (laughs) But really, um, sincerely, your belief in change, I think, is infectious. And having seen many of the leading companies move in many of the directions you've described, I do share your optimism, but like you believe, there's probably still a ways we've got to go. Congratulations again on the book. We should give it one more plug. It's entitled The Six New Rules of Business by Judy Samuelson from Brett Kohler Publishers. You can find it on Amazon or through your favorite independent bookstore. So, Judy, for folks who enjoyed our conversation, are there any websites that you might encourage folks to visit or other articles, relevant materials on these themes that you might want to just plug? Sure. Well, the the website for the Business and Society program is Aspen, like the tree, Aspen BSP for Business Society Program, aspenbsp.org. And then the book website is judysamuelson.com. Great. So the latter one will take you to the book and all the places you can buy it. And I appreciate your support today. And you can learn more about our work on CEO pay and other business education, and other domains at aspenbsp.org. Great. So, Judy, thanks very much. I look forward to our next get-together, hopefully in person in a post-COVID moment. So stay safe and well. I look forward to it. So for more episodes of the Global Pathways podcast, visit pulte.nd.edu backslash Global Pathways podcast, where you can stream or subscribe to a variety of different online platforms. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Ray Offenheiser, and I'll see you next time. Additional support for the Global Pathways podcast with Ray Offenheiser comes from the University of Notre Dame's Keele School of Global Affairs, home to the Pulte Institute and other global institutes, centers, and programs. As Notre Dame's first new college or school in nearly a century, the Keele School places development at the heart of global affairs. Learn more at nd.edu globalaffairs global affairs.